Welcome back. Canto 23 from Dante's Inferno this time. Um, I will be reading from the Mark Musa translation. And after my reading, I will offer a brief reflection and some notes for further thinking. In silence all alone, without an escort, we moved along, one behind the other, like minor friars bent upon a journey. I was thinking over of Aesop's fables that this recent skirmish had brought back to mind, where he tells the story of the frog and mouse. For yon and there could not be more alike than the fable and the fact, if one compares the start and finish of both incidences. As from one thought another often rises, so this thought gave quick birth to still another. And then the fear I felt, I first had felt, was doubled. I was thinking, since these fiends on our account were tricked and mortified by mockery, mockery, they certainly will be more than resentful. With the rage now added to their evil instincts, they will hunt us down with all the savagery of dogs about to pounce upon the hare. I felt my body's skin begin to tighten. I was so frightened. And I kept looking back. Oh, master, I said, if you do not hide both of us, and very quick, I am afraid of a malbranch. Right now they're on our trail. I feel they're there. I think I hear them now. And he replied, hmm, Even if I were a mirror, I could not reflect your outward image faster than your inner thoughts transmit themselves to me. In fact, just now they joined themselves with mine, and since they are alike, were alike in form and birth, I decided to unite them towards one goal. If the right-hand bank should slope in such a way as to allow us to descend to the next Bolgia, we can escape that chase we have imagined. He had hardly finished telling me his plan when I saw them coming with their wings wide open not too far off, and now they meant to get us. My guide instinctively caught hold of me, like a mother waking to some warning sound who sees the rising flames are getting close and grabs her son and runs. She does not wait the short time it would take on to take to put on something. She cares not for herself, only for him. And over the edge, then down the stony bank he slid, on his back, along the sloping rock, the walls the higher side of the next bolgia. Water that turns a mill wheel never ran the Cerro sluice of greater speed, not even at the point before it hits the paddle blades. Then down that sloping border my guide slid, bearing me with him, clasping me to his chest, as though I were his child, not his companion. His feet had hardly touched rock bottom when they, when there they were, the ten of them, above us on the height. But now there was no need to fear. High providence that willed for them to be the ministers in charge of that fifth ditch also willed them powerless to leave their realm. And now, down there, we found a painted people, slow-motioned. Step by step they walked their round in tears, and seeming wasted by fatigue. All were wearing cloaks with hoods pulled low, covering the eyes. The style was much the same as those Benedictines wear at Cluny. Dazzling, gilded cloaks outside. But inside they were lined with lead, so heavy that the capes King Frederick used, compared to these, were straw. O cloak of everlasting weariness! We turned again as usual to the left, and moved with them those souls lost in their mourning. But with their weight, that tired-out race of shades paced on so slowly that we found ourselves in new company with every step we took. And so I asked my guide, 
please look around and see as we keep walking if you find someone whose name or deeds are known to me. And one who overheard me speaking Tuscan cried out somewhere behind us, Not so fast, you, there, rushing ahead through this heavy air. Perhaps from me you can obtain an answer. At this my guide turned towards me, saying, Stop and wait for him, then match your pace with his. I paused and saw two shades with straining faces, revealing their minds haste to join my side, but the weight they bore and the crowded road delayed them. When they arrived, they looked at me sideways, and for some time without exchanging words, then they turned to one another and were saying, He seems alive, the way his throat is moving, and if both are dead, what privilege allows them to walk uncovered by the heavy cloak? Then they spoke to me, O Tuscan, who has come to visit the college of the sullen hypocrites, do not disdain to tell us who you are. I answered them, I was born and grew up in the great city of the lovely Arno shore, and I have the body I have always had. But who are you, distilling tears of grief? So many I see running down your cheeks. And what kind of pain is this, that it can glitter? One of them answers, answered, the orange gilded cloaks are thick with lead so heavy that it makes us, who are the scales it hangs on, creak as we walk. Jovial friars we were, both from Bologna. My name was Catalono, his La Duringo, and both, both of us were chosen by your city that usually would choose one man alone to keep the peace. Evidence of what we were may still be seen around Garadingo's parts. I began, O oh, friars, all your wretchedness, but said no more. I couldn't, for I saw one crucified with three stakes on the ground, and when he saw me all his body writhed, and through his beard he heaved out sighs of pain. Then friar Catalano, who watched the scene, remarked, That impaled figure you see there advised the Pharisees it was expedient to sacrifice one man for all the people. Naked he lies stretched across the road, as you can see, and he must feel the load of every weight that steps on him to cross. His father-in-law and the other council members, who were the seed of evil for all the Jews, are racked the same way all along this ditch. And I saw Virgil staring down amazed at this body stretched out in crucifixion, so vilely punished in the eternal exile. Then he looked up and asked one of the friars, could you please tell us, if your rule permits, if there is a passageway on the right somewhere by which the two of us may leave this place without summoning one of those black angels to come down here and raise us from this pit? He answered, Closer than you might expect. A ridge jutting out from the base of the great circle extends and bridges every, every hideous ditch except this one, whose arch is totally smashed and crosses nowhere, but you can climb up its massive ruins that slopes against this bank. My guide stood there a while, his head bent low, then said, He told a lie about this business, the one who hooks the sinners over there. And the friar, Once in Bologna I heard discuss the devil's many vices. One of them is that he tells lies, and is the father of all lies. In haste, taking great strides, my guide walked off, his face revealing traces of his anger. I turned and left the heavy-weighted souls to make my way behind those cherished footprints. So this canto is a tour de force. It, it is both wildly consistent <laughs> with everything in the Inferno, 
Uh, we see a, a lot of the pieces of earlier uh, sections of hell here, but we also see the con kind of a conclusion to um, the grotesque humor and uh, change in tone um, that we first uh, began to uh, see in, uh, in, in, in 20, in Canto 20, so 21, 22, and now 23. Um, and, you know, this, this moment where Virgil recognizes that the Malakota's words were actually false about the bridge here at the ending in line 140, 41, kind of, is the culmination of all the lies that were that were told. We get to see uh, the general sin of fraud in action, uh, just as we had seen in the last canto uh, uh, with the damned uh, soul who uh, you know, fools fools the demons. So here are we. Um, uh, sort of what ha how it gets wrapped up is is both with re uh, Virgil's recognition of lying, but also with this um, th this incredible portrayal of the hypocrites. Um, and uh, so let's work through this. Um, let's work th through this uh, uh, really slowly and and pay close attention to how Dante um, presents us with this um, important pass. Uh, this important um, uh, treatment of the sin of uh, hypocrisy. So he begins the canto um, by uh, by uh, uh, alluding to Aesop's fables about the frog and the mouse. Um, and uh, my notes tell me that this was not Aesop, actually, um, and that Dante got that wrong. Um, but the story itself is of the of the mouse who asks the frog to cross the the, the water, and uh, the frog says yes. And but t uh, and the mouse ties itself to the frog. The frog makes an attempt to to dive and drown the mouse, but in fact the two are taken up by a hawk, uh, uh, who ends up releasing the mouse and eating the frog, and so there's the within that there's of course all these there's kind of beasts. Um, the hawk imagery actually reminds us of Canto Twenty Two, in which the the demons themselves are compared to as hawks, sort of swooping down, um, but also reinforces this uh, this this idea of fraud, right? Who frauds whom, and how we get caught in there. I don't know if there's a one-to-one -one correlation. If uh, Chiampo is uh, is the mouse, and or rather the the frog, yeah, the mouse, and the or rather he's whatever. It doesn't matter. There's a mouse. There's a frog. There's a hawk, and there's deception here. And some escape, and some don't. And the ones that participate in the fraud do not uh, do not escape. Right? They get they get tied within their own within their own network of lies. Which is what hypocrisy is. So, in a sense, um, that is an introduction. That this this opening allusion to the fable, and the recent skirmish uh, of Canto Twenty Two is a preface to seeing uh, the hypocrites. And Dante is also very scared. Continues to be afraid, and uh, and and says it. Um, because he believes the Malabranch are, are out to get them, and indeed, uh, in a sense, they kind of are, um, but they are saved by the borders or by the law. They're not allowed to. They're sort of following the two uh, journeyers um, and uh, Virgil Dante, but they're not allowed to go beyond uh, where, they, where they are. Also notice how, how maternal Virgil uh, continues to be, especially in this passage. He doesn't just represent reason. He doesn't just represent sort of the, the guide, the Moses through which he is, um, is bringing Dante through to the promised land, but he also represents sort of a good mother or a good father here in embracing uh, Dante. In line 37, Musa translates this as, my guide instinctually caught hold of me. 
like a mother waking to some warning sound. So um, it's, a nice, it's sort of this pretty explicit uh, allusion to motherhood. But the idea of just grabbing hold of him, right, grabbing hold of him and then bringing him over to, um, uh, to the, another point down the sloping border. Uh, he sort of slides down there, holds him to his chest. And uh, at line 51, it says, as though I were his child, not his companion. So the, the maternalness, the love that, um, that Virgil has for Dante, and of course Dante the poet has for Virgil as he writes about this deeply maternal figure. Um, and then the repeating idea of the high of high providence, right? That high providence is what controls hell, and uh, fear is dissipated in the face of that knowledge. Dante's purpose in hell is to is to sort of be instructed and and to um, to correct his will and to perfect his will, and so uh, understanding and overcoming his fears is an important step in a clear-minded correction uh, uh, and being able to be directed. So fear itself is not necessarily uh, proof that Dante is not worthy, but rather overcoming that fear. I and mean, he does so here through Virgil. As, he, uh, as Dante and Virgil kind of come back over this slope, um, they see the hypocrites. And here are the hypocrites, a painted people slow motion. Step by step, they walk their round in tears and seeming wasted by fatigue. And at first, he doesn't realize that this uh, that they're actually um, uh, the insides are, are lined with lead just yet. Right? He first sees them and does not understand why they should be moving uh, so so slow and seeming wasted by fatigue. So Dante is unclear at first as to why uh, they should be uh, you know behaving in in this way. And um, this is a picture of that would have been relatively familiar uh, to Dante at this time. The sort of the, the cloaks, the hoods, the habit. These are the Benedictines where at Cluny, um, dazzling. And uh, my footnotes also Musa also tells me that that the uh, Benedictines at Cluny were considered to actually have um, quite um, expen uh, maybe not expensive habit, but quite you know quite beautiful uh, and outwardly beautiful um, habit. They were known for that, and so. Uh, Dante makes mention of this, but tells us that there's something underneath it. There's something underneath it, and this is the this is the the lead that that holds them down. So the even the idea of the of the uh, uh, you know the, the the gilded cloaks is itself tied to in an etymological way to the the word hypocrite. Right? There's this, there's an idea that that hypocrisy itself is a form of gilding. It's a form of making the outside look uh, uh, very different. Um, from uh, from the inside. So just a shift here in uh, some audio quality. Uh, while I was recording this, I was compelled to move uh, from the uh, my upstairs studio to move my studio downstairs. So apologies for that. Let's move on to the figure of the impaled figure of Caiaphas. And uh, Virgil uh, is surprised by Caiaphas. And commentators have suggested Virgil's surprise is because Historically, he wasn't aware of Caiaphas, but um, but also it, it just appears to be that the 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 uh, the, the mode of crucifixion also is uh, is is quite amazed, um, and Virgil, of course, uh, is confused by this uh, crucifixion of Caiaphas. Now, Caiaphas is the uh, the high priest of the Jews who 
um, who believed it was better for one man to die than for 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 the whole Hebrew nation to be lost, and um, and so Caiaphas is a is sort of bridging this this gap where others walk across him, and that's part of his punishment um, in eternal exile. Uh, why is Caiaphas here? Um, it's a bit of a puzzle. Um, why Caiaphas would be uh, put in with the hypocrites, um, and um, and there's some and there's some ink that is spilt on on explaining why this is. Um, Musa believes that you know um, it's a fitting punishment for Caiaphas, uh, since he was the one who judged Christ. Um, he himself was a kind of evil counselor, and um, and he has to bear now the weight uh, of all hypocrites for their crime. Um, so that crucified hypocrites are also evil counselors. Um, and uh, although what Caiaphas needed to do to bring about a providential design, that is the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ, um, he himself, according to St. Thomas Aquinas, was internally, uh, in sort of an, an, an internally um, motivated, not by, uh, not by true justice, right, but, but motivated by um, taking this burden of the situation off of himself and putting it on to someone else. And so there's that, uh, there's that contradiction between outer and inner uh, that, is so, um, that is so crucial to the figure of the hypocrite. Uh, I still read the passage and I'm a bit uh, uh, puzzled by Caiaphas's um, uh, uh, appearance in this, uh, in Canto 23, um, and, and, uh, and though there be good explanations for it, um, I'm still, um, I still think that it was just a good place for Dante to make this dramatic point um, and to have Virgil be so uh, surprised. In line 140 and 41, after uh, Caiaphas, after uh, Virgil looks down uh, in amazement, um, uh, there there is a kind of completion of uh, of Dante's um, traveling through this this passage um, uh, from uh, Canto twenty one uh, through twenty three, and uh, Virgil recognizes that. Um, the bridge, uh, the, the, that the bridge was uh, the, the, the unbroken bridge, uh, the words about Malakota who uh, gave uh, Virgil the, the description of, the, of this bridge back in, in Canto uh, 21 was actually a lie. So this really uh, brings to a conclusion a series of lies that have been told uh, by, the, by the Malakota and by the other Malbranch demons in order to deceive Dante and Virgil, um, thinking that there was uh, a smashed uh, primary uh, bridge, um, there was another one further down that was whole. Um, then there's the uh, Chiapolo incident, which we discussed in, in the in the in the in the last recording, um, in which he uh, deceives the the demons in order to uh, you know in order to uh, you know sort of escape his own punishment. And here, um, in, in here, finally. Uh, the lie uh, is is revealed, and so we have a series of lies uh, and deceptions that bring that stretch uh, from Canto twenty twenty one all the way through uh, twenty twenty three, and um, in this shows Virgil as kind of this weaker figure, one given to uh, to claims of of deception. Uh, Virgil is uh, kind of a weak figure 
um, in this canto, insofar as that he uh, becomes angry uh, about the uh, about the incident, and and yet he has to compose himself, and uh, um, he he certainly is vulnerable to lying, and uh, we'll see more of this, or I've seen more of this, whether I continue these recordings in the purgatory as it means to be seen but in the purgatory we see Virgil's um, figure decreasing in um, in not just simply significance uh, for for Dante's pilgrimage but ra also for Dante's perspective on on what it is he is uh, on Dante's perspective on what it is he is to learn in part because Virgil just fails to cope with um, with lying and to recognize uh, fraud. And uh, it may be that Virgil, as a representative of reason, reason always, uh, uh, not always, but, but overlooks uh, potential fraud, uh, sort, of, uh, sort of almost assumes um, the truth in, in things, in what people say, um, and uh, is, is conf in, in sort of fails to grasp um, deception. So Virgil's um, confusion, both of first of Caiaphas and now in the, uh, when he says in line 140, told a lie about this business, this business being the bridge, and um, that, that reason has its limitations as it relates to um, uh, appearances. Now, just as I'm ready to move on from Ca the figure of Caiaphas after making my own uh, my own commentary on my confusion about Caiaphas. So I took a moment to refer back to Dorothy Sayers's uh, translation of, of Dante's Inferno. And in that, uh, in her footnotes to Canto 23, she, she, uh, she unpacks uh, the figure of Caiaphas. I just want to read this to you since it offers an, quite an al alternative view. Uh, of, of the figure of Caiaphas, and she writes, this image lends itself particularly well to Dante's fourfold system of interpretation. Number one, literal, the punishment of Caiaphas after death. Two, allegorical, the condition of the Jews in this world being identified with the image they rejected and the suffering they inflicted, quote, crucified forever in, a, in eternal exile, end of quote. Three, moral, the condition in this life of the man who sacrifices his inner truth to expediency, in other words, his true vocation to money-making or his true love to a politic alliance, and to whom the rejected good becomes at once a, he a heaven for which he is exiled and a rack on which he suffers. And, and then finally, anagogical, the state here and hereafter of the soul which rejects God and which can know God only as wrath and terror while at the same time it suffers the agony of eternal separation from God, who is its true good. Uh, so Sayers uh, pays particularly uh, close attention to uh, the third category, the moral category, in which uh, she too reads into uh, the inner truth to expediency. So there is a, uh, a contrast between outer and inner which uh, represents the hypocrite perfectly. So Hollander has an interesting uh, footnote here, four lines, 145 through 148. So Virgil is angered um, by this, uh, by being lied to. Um, and um, Dante kind of, according to Hollander, has created this whole scene 
um, in order to uh, put a spotlight on Virgil as looking sort of less than perfect. Um, and now Dante is going to follow uh, Virgil off uh, into, into the remainder of, of hell, he writes here. Uh, and so I left those on overburdened souls to follow in the imprints of his cherished feet. So uh, Hollander explains this conclusion as a recapitulation or a re revision of Statius's um, Tybalt, uh, in which um, he warns all poets not to attempt to rival the divine Aeneid. And he writes, um, this is Statius now, the, the, the Roman poet who will, who will be seen in the purgatory. Um, he writes there, do not attempt to rival the divine Aeneid but follow at a distance, always worshiping its footsteps. So this is an interesting, um, according to Hollander, this is an interesting revision or uh, kind of a very deep allusion to Statius's work, uh, Tybalt, of which we know was important to Dante as he was writing the Inferno, um, as a way of saying, uh, you know, despite Virgil's uh, failures as a poet or despite his mistakes as a poet he is still the one to follow don't 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 bother in in making an attempt to rival and um hollander doesn't mention this but i it, it makes me look forward to uh, canto uh, 24 in which um virgil uh sort of uh really cheers dante on in almost a a prideful way when he says come on shake off your sloth you're not gonna you're not going to be a great poet if you stay in bed. This will be in the next canto in our next recording, but it sort of is consistent with, you know, returning back to Virgil the poet, not just Virgil the representation of reason, but that that Dante really is doing kind of a kind of rivaling, making an attempt to rival Virgil while at the same time, um, deeply respecting him and being being pious. So the conclusion of this canto ends on this um, uh, poetic following of of Virgil. And, um, and so I'll end there for, for today, and I hope you will join me for uh, Canto 24, um, which is uh, full of snakes and really interesting, creepy, crawly things. So looking forward to it. Take care.